listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary, broadcasting on Treaty 7 land. This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Part of the greatness of Baldwin is that he also knows how thick white supremacy is in the souls of black people. That the lie has been something that too many black people have consented to. So if you really believe you're less beautiful, less intelligent, less moral, if you run around scared, intimidated, and fearful all the time, and laughing when it don't, it ain't funny, and scratching when it don't itch, you're just gonna wear a mask your whole life. Says the only thing that can break the back of fear is love. That's Cornell West, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Cornell West and Eddie Glaude Jr. on James Baldwin's legacy. James Baldwin was one of the most significant figures of the 20th century. In this moment of racial reckoning, his life and work are being discovered and rediscovered. James Baldwin was born in 1924 and died in 1987. He graduated from high school in New York, but was otherwise self-taught. He said, I love America more than any other country in the world. That's why I reserve the right to perpetually criticize her. And criticize he did. In his classic essays such as The Fire Next Time and Notes of a Native Son and his novels Go Tell It on the Mountain and Another Country, he wrote about the white power structure, systemic racism, police brutality, sexism, homophobia, inequality, and predatory capitalism. To talk about James Baldwin are our guests today, Eddie Glaude Jr. and Cornell West. Eddie Glaude Jr. is the Distinguished University Professor of African American Studies at Princeton. He's the author of Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Today. Cornell West is Professor of the Practice of Public Philosophy at Harvard. He's the author of many books, including Race Matters, and Black Prophetic Fire. The program was moderated by Maya Marshall. We begin with Cornell West. Eddie Glaude is a custodian of a rich inheritance and a caretaker of a great tradition of a hated people that still keep dishing out these levels of truth and beauty. So this is why to engage with somebody like Baldwin, who's in by the highest levels of greatness, the courage to think critically, the courage to generate hope. And to mm. practice hope is to be connected to the best of one's tradition to understand what has gone into the making and molding. And to make that tradition available to the whole world, because the whole world dealing with levels of different catastrophe. People have been able to somehow keep, keep it on, keep on pushing. And so that's what you actually get in Begin Again. And let's just be honest about it. It's a tear-soaked, 
blood-soaked and yet soulful tradition? First of all, there's, there's a line that, there's so many lines in Jimmy that will blow you away. But there's a moment in Istanbul, he's being interviewed by Ebony. Um, and he uses Begin Again, and, and Baldwin is sitting there. And it's 1970, I think. And, and the interviewer asks him, what then about hope? Baldwin I remember exactly what he said. He, I remember what he what said. Did he say, what did he say? He said, hope must be invented every day. That's our tradition. That's now. our tradition. Now, hope is not abstract. It's a verb. It's motion. It's movement. It's deed. It's praxis. And you got to be improvisational about it. You got to be jazz-like about it. You got to be blues-like about it. You better reinvent that thing every day. Good morning, heartache. I got to reinvent my fortifying resources to deal with that heartache, and it's going to come back the next day. Exactly. It's going to come back the next day. It's going to come back the next day. You get Billy Holiday echoing through with her genius, Baldwin right there. And the Baldwin, of course, he, he understands the musicians mean the world to him. Absolutely. In the face of the assassination of Dr. King, where they murdered an apostle of love, and Jimmy collapses, could barely pick up the pieces, yeah. tries to commit suicide in 69, find you know, relationships collapsing around him, still thinks he's this loveless child who's ugly because his daddy told him he was so ugly that he then believed that nobody could love that ugly little boy. Finds himself in Istanbul trying to figure out how to speak to this moment. And there he gives utterance to this line, this formulation that Doc just laid out. Hope is invented every day. But a necessary practice that we in fact are the hope. You know, it is it is our commitment to um, to showing up that is the hope. That is the model, that is uh, the practice of witness. And he was just so right so often. Even and in see, Sister Maya, all the courage and willingness to be crushed and misunderstood and misconstrued and thoroughly uh, uh, pushed to the fringes and still have that kind of bounce back. See, you see what I mean? That's, That's the it. stuff, you see. So that, uh, you know, what we have in Brother Eddie's book here in the middle of a, a blues-like situation in the U.S. empire, he's saying, well, you know, we blues people, this ain't new for us. We've been here before. Not this particular historical moment, but similar kinds of moments. And it's a human thing. It's not just a black thing, because black folk are human beings presuppose assume don't have to prove nothing to nobody and yet we'll have to learn how to love and fight and hope and laugh in our families with our mamas and our daddies and our mosques and our temples and our synagogues and our churches in our university that working that out at princeton princeton didn't have in mind no genius from moth point mississippi <laughs> Be distinguished university professor. Now, Jeff Stout is not surprised. He's our fellow colleague and teacher. I'm not surprised. Albert Roberto's not surprised. We, we got teachers and those who see us as we continue to grow and mature. We're not surprised. 
But then the fact that he's still like Baldwin is connected to the best of his tradition. That's the thing about it. That uh, you know, that other moment at Howard, though, you probably won't say a little word when 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 he tells the students. I won't. I won't oh, say what he tells. No, no, no. You tell. No. You tell that story, brother. <laughs> no, it's this is a gorgeous moment, right? They nagged nonviolent action group who were so central to to SNCC. They produced that radical cohort in mm. that group. It's Muriel Tillinghast and and Cortland Cox and mm. Stokely Carmichael, who would become who would become Kwame Toure, Michael Thelwell, they all come out of that group. They invite him to come to campus. He's supposed to be on 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 stage with Ralph Ellison, who couldn't make it, Lorraine, who was too sick, uh, Ozzie Davis and others, and he lays bare. But then they retreat after the, the panel discussion. Malcolm was in that audience, too. He said, whenever I'm in town and I hear this little brother's going to speak, I want to come hear him because I know he's going to speak the truth. They go to the apartment of some one of the NAG members, and it's late night. Jimmy needs a scotch. There's no liquor. Somebody knows a bootlegger. So they get the liquor, and they, they, they're, they're talking until the late midnight hour to the sun begins to come up. And then Baldwin has the last word. And Jimmy said, if you promise your elder brother that you will not believe what the world says about you. I will promise you that I will never betray you. And Kwame Ture tells Michael Thelwell in his biography, autobiography, and Thelwell quotes it, and Jimmy never betrayed us, no matter what they said about us. Never betrayed us. Now, I was sitting next to Stokely Carmichael Kwame Toure at the funeral, December 1987, St. John's Cathedral, when a genius named Baraka and another genius named Tony Morrison gave wow. their hearts, minds, and soul, and Stokely cried like a baby. I've traveled with Stokely, and he's not in the crying kind of, he ain't crying kind of brother. That given all the faults and foibles of all of us as human beings, Baldwin never sold out. He was never fake. He was never a phony. He was never a fraud. He was never a coward. Given all of his ups and downs, I mean, two suicide attempts, right? 55 and 69, yeah, absolutely. Ooh. You see, he's wrestling with despair. That's true for all of us. All of us may not opt for that particular way of wrestling with it, but he's wrestling with despair. But he never betrayed everyday Black people, really everyday people, you see, and that's... That, that's a rare thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's majestic. It's sublime, actually. And you're able to tease that out. I mean, this is why this, this is the most important text ever written on Baldwin in terms of his genius and his relevance. The connection to the, the music is, is powerful. But in terms of the relevance to this particular historical moment, politically, morally, and spiritually, this is the text. Yeah, you have made it abundantly clear that James Baldwin was a man who looked first into the faces of his own demons in order yeah, to be yeah. honest with himself, because he was a person who believed you made yourself from your experiences, from your reality, um, and that maybe you could give yourself some distance to get the perspective, but that you had to come back and show up for your people and for where you're from and for yourself. The text. Yeah, you know, I bear, you know, Maya, it's such a great point. I barely survived writing the book. You know, I knew when I, I knew when I decided to start reading him seriously that he was going to. She was gonna ask things of me that I wasn't quite ready for when I was younger, right? And there's a sense in which Baldwin always assumes this as a precondition to say anything about the messiness of the world. You got to deal with your own mess. 
So you got to deal with the interior wounds and pains as a precondition to say anything about the world. Because Baldwin thinks that the messiness of the world is actually a reflection of the lies and dishonesty that we tell ourselves. So I'm sitting here and I'm grappling with the fact that I'm a vulnerable little boy, still dealing with my daddy issues, still grappling with the fact that he could just, and that's why I began there this way. Mm -hmm. My father, I love my father, it's black love. He made me possible. Woke up every day in the Mississippi heat, used to sweat his belts rotten in the Mississippi heat, you know, delivering mail. But he could look at me and scare me to death. I would shudder. And I've been grappling with what it means to have that fear put inside of me so early. And as I was writing, the sentence just came out, right, about me dealing with my daddy. And, you know, by the time I get to the end of the book, my father is with me as I visit Jimmy's grave. And I'm talking about how us telling each other how we love each other, how he's calling me to tell me what to say on television and, and how proud he is <laughs> of me in life, right? And when you read Jimmy, you read Baldwin Notes of a Native Son, his critique of his stepfather is scathing. But you read Baldwin by the time he's about to die, the later writings about his father, he understands what the world did to him. It's not so much him, but the context of his living. So the writing of Begin Again is a kind of writing that I've never done in public before. I'm taking risks because Jimmy demanded it of me. And I should say this really quickly. He forced me to deal with the scaffolding of my own lives. Yes, absolutely. He's asking that of our country and as, as well, right? Um, those of us who are trying to, to pull the nation back from the neo-fascist moment uh, to be honest with, with ourselves for, because the narratives are important. So if you take a moment to speak to your definition of both the lie and the notion of the value gap, resolving those things, I would, I would love to hear the two of you discuss that. The best way to talk about the lie is from Jimmy's essay, 1964 essay, The White Problem. He wrote it in um, for uh, Robert A. Goodwin's uh, edited volume, 100 Years of Emancipation. And he reads, the people who settled the country had a fatal flaw. They could recognize a man when they saw one. They knew he wasn't anything else but a man. But since they were Christian, and since they had already decided that they came here to establish a free country, the only way to justify the role this chattel was playing in one's life was to say that he was not a man. Or if he wasn't, then no crime had been committed. That lie is the basis of our present trouble. And so what Baldwin is saying here at the heart of it is that there have been lies told about Black people's capacities, about our character, about our passions, all to justify Right, this system of exploitation, this system, this cruel, barbaric system of, of slavery that is at the heart of the founding of the modern world, right? At the heart of the founding of the country. And so not only do you have lies about black people, you have lies about what white Americans have done to black people. And then you have the lie that's so, this is the key point. There's, there's a way in which the lie works that it malforms, I use that verb on purpose, any effort to expose 
the country to the reality of what it has done. So anything that comes to reveal the truth of what the of what the nation has done, what it has done to the native peoples, what it has done in Haiti and Cuba and the Philippines, what it has done in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, anything that actually reveals that America is not the shining city on the hill or the redeemer nation or the example of democracy achieved, anything that attempts to reveal that reality is immediately dismissed as heresy, delegitimized from the beginning, you know? But anyway, that's what I mean by the lie. And that lie is the architecture within which the value gap breathes. And the value gap is this fundamental belief that white people matter more than others. And that's at the heart of, it's at the heart of our social arrangements, our political arrangements, our economic arrangements. It's a valuation of, of black folk and a valuation of white folk that lead to the distribution of advantage and disadvantage that distorts the character of these folk who hold it, so they can't even become the kinds of people their conception of democracy requires. Absolutely, it sounds to me what you're saying is that um, the key tool we have to fighting that foundational fear that Audre Lorde says we're born with is to have a true reality, a sense of who we actually are, that we in fact are human without having to ask, that we are equal, that we are as important, that we are deserving of love, that we are not ugly. Right. That's the sort of crucial truth we have to hold in our hearts in order to fight the fear that that enters immediately at the, at the beginning of our breath. Um, I'm going to read just a little passage from from the book and then ask you one more question about this notion of innocence. But the lie's most pernicious effect when it comes to our history is the malform events to fit the story whenever America's innocence is threatened by reality. When measured against our actions, the story we have told ourselves about America being a divinely sanctioned nation called to be a beacon of light and a moral force in the world is a lie. The idea of the lost cause as just an honest assessment of what happened after the Civil War is a lie. The stories we often tell ourselves of the civil rights movement and racial progress in this country with Rosa Parks's courage and Dr. King's moral vision and the unreasonable venom of black power culminating in the election of Barack Obama are all too often lies. So I wonder, what could we gain if we disabused ourselves of the notion of innocence as it relates to the citizenry and the state? You know, on one level, we could leave behind the swaddling clothing. We could... <laughs> We can become mature, grow up. The lie keeps us in Never Never Land. Perpetual state of adolescence, so you don't have to be responsible for anything. Right? The lie uh, allows us to, to exist in a kind of willful ignorance about what we have done and what we are doing. Remember that moment in Phoenix Time in 63? Right? When he talks about what is happening to black folk. He said, it's not, it's not just that line that is echoed in that movie with the late brother with uh, Ice Cube and uh, where he said they don't know, either they don't know or they don't show. Remember that movie? Uh, Boys in the Hood. Oh, right? the great John Singleton. John yes, Singleton, yes. right? It's not just simply if they don't know or they don't show. Remember that line? And what he's saying is it's not just, it's not that they don't know. They willfully don't want to acknowledge what they're doing to millions of their fellows, right? And Baldwin says, it's not enough that you can do that, but and then claim innocence? Innocence is the crime. Right. But I think once we leave that behind, we're stepping into maturity. But for me, see, part of the greatness of Baldwin is that he also knows how 
thick white supremacy is in the souls of black people. That the lie has been something that too many black people have consented to. So if you really believe you're less beautiful, less intelligent, less moral, if you run around scared, intimidated, and fearful all the time and laughing when it don't, it ain't funny and scratching when it don't itch, you're just going to wear a mask your whole life. So the only thing that can break the back of fear is love. See, love of beauty will break it. You, you, you listen to the emotions. You listen to some cold training. You got the pursuance in there twice. He's got the reference to that third part of a love supreme on the drums. And then Jimmy takes over on the bass. Then McCoy comes on the piano. Then Jimmy on the bass. Then Train takes it off. That is the stuff that can break the back of fear. Because fear is something that all human beings have to come to terms with. I mean, Audrey Lord, as, as Sister Maya pointed out, she understood that well. Lorraine Hansberry understood that well in Raising in the Sun. People are fearful. The only way you grow into maturity is through a sense of history, your sense of memory, and the love that went into you that empowers you to break the kinds of anxieties that don't allow you to be the free person you ought to be. You got to break it out. That's right. Got Muhammad Ali and Nina Simone. These are free black people. Baldwin was part of that cloud of witnesses and brother Eddie. Now see Eddie putting more responsibility on himself now because Baldwin, of course, was someone who was chewed up and spit out by the liberal establishment. That's why Brother Eddie argues no name in the street is a classic. There is a genius in Baldwin after the deaths of Malcolm and Martin and Metcalf. There's a right. genius in Baldwin where the only thing he can fall back on is the love of his family, Mahalia Jackson, Ray Charles, and others, because as he got closer to death, which is true for all of us, that those things that really, really, really matter that can sustain you, that's where, that's what you're going to fall back on. Grandmom and granddaddy and your kids and your friends and your partners and your intellectual ancestors like the, uh, that we get involved with. Brother Eddie lays this out. He sure does. You know, you know, Baldwin never stopped telling the truth, um, even when it seemed that he was fully disheartened. You know, Dr. Gloud points out a, a, a reading or a passage in that first um, couple of sections that's a, that could be read as saying, oh, Baldwin gave up. But what he did is he gave um, a framework for old age, right, which is not something we introduce to uh, our young activists or talk about much at, at school. We talked mm -hmm. earlier about... Um, recursiveness about, you know, the a Love Supreme, having that third movement where you sort of re, uh, rehear the melody, even though he's, you know, do, doing more for dissonance in order to show the beauty and the destruction in the lyric, right? Like, that's important. I want to turn to this idea that Dr. Glaub points out in the book of trauma me memory. He didn't stop saying the same facts. He just had a different perspective, a new lens that comes with age and that comes with uh, devastation. The scholarship around Jimmy is, is much more articulated, and it's, it's just amazing to see the work with James Baldwin Review, with Dwight uh, McBride and others. So the, the traditional reading of old Baldwin, late Baldwin, early Baldwin, late Baldwin, uh, folk don't really buy into that anymore. That, that, that silly biography by James Campbell um, has been kind of displaced by others who have been working in, in Jimmy's work. But I want to hold on to this claim that there's a continuity of theme uh, running through Jimmy, that he's grappling with ideas under different material conditions that change how he's thinking about love, identity, history, memory, 
right? How he's thinking about white supremacy and the like. Um, so it's not that he goes bad in the teeth or he succumbs to the propaganda of black power or he seeks only a kind of continued relevance after he's fallen out of out of celebrity, as it were. No, he's grappling with the conditions under which black folk have to live and the conditions under which love has to be expressed. That's why I think somebody has to really grapple with the evidence of things not seen, right? Mm -hmm. When he's writing about the Atlanta child murders and he's trying to figure out what's, what, what are we dealing with when these black babies are being killed and we got all these black folk in power? How are we gonna grapple with this, right? Uh, the book needed a good editing, but it's a brilliant text that requires a different kind of reading. I think though, that, that trauma is at the heart of how we think about reading Jimmy in this latter phase, right? How he's grappling with and narrating trauma. There's a line I wanna to get to in the witness chapter. And I remember writing this and trying to figure out I got up after I wrote it and poured myself a stiff drink because I knew uh, something had just happened. Um, and it goes something like this, narrating trauma fragments how we remember. We recall what we can and what we desperately need to keep ourselves together. Wounds historical and painfully present threaten to rend the soul and if that happens, nothing else matters. Telling the story of trauma in fits and starts isn't history in any formal sense. It is the way traumatic memory works, recollections caught in the pitch of battle between remembering and forgetting. That's Tony right there. Facts bungled on behalf of much needed truths. We try to keep our heads above water and tell ourselves a story that keeps our legs and arms moving below the surface. Terror cannot be remembered. One blots it out. The organism, the human being blots it out. One invents or creates a personality or a persona beneath this accumulation rock of ages. Sleeps or hopes to sleep, that terror which the memory repudiates. And then I said the cruel irony, of course, is that terror, the terrors move us about. We dig trenches to redirect the memories and to get them to flow away from us. But like the waters of the Mississippi River, the memories always return, flooding everything no matter how high we build the stilts. Right, so I think at the end, Baldwin is trying to, in the latter part of his career, trying to tell the story of what happened, right? And trying to offer a language that will allow us, right, to pick up the pieces and move forward. You cannot understand what Tony is doing with memory and beloved and not understand what, what Baldwin is doing with memory and no name in the street. Structurally, it's almost, right, they're echoing each other in these extraordinarily beautiful ways. Memory turning back on itself, anything triggering it. The mind is a strange thing. He was on the verge of madness in yes, the face yes, of it all. Yes. And you're well, going to dismiss that, Doc? You're going to dismiss rich. that? That's rich. But back to Maya's reading, though, at the very beginning of our dialogue, where right before you talk about beginning again, you were talking about what is not lost. And what is not lost is responsibility. Responding, an ability to respond, accountability, accounting of oneself, accounting of one's community, accounting of one's society and the world, answerability. We have to be able to answer one another. And you see, this is, Baldwin gets this in black music. 
You see that the musicians must take responsibility for the notes they play, right or wrong. Responsibility for the sound, responsibility for the impact on the audience. Are you going to touch the souls of the folk to enable them in such a way that they can be agents of love and hope? And I think Baldwin understood, and, and Brother Eddie lays this out so magnificently, that uh, the black intellectual ought to be like the black musician. See, when black folks see the black musician, they say, that's somebody who will more likely empower me if they sing in the right key and know how to, know how to play. Whereas black intellectuals don't have that status. Black intellectuals, oh, no, here comes another arrogant so-and-so looking down on everyday people, thinking they better than uppity and so forth and so on. If the black intellectuals had the same status as the black musicians, they would be looking for us. Oh, we hungry for more narrative. We hungry for more poetry. We, we want Haki. We want Gwendolyn. We want The Last Poet. We want Gil Scott. We go on and on. So let me make this argument that the poets are black intellectuals. That's, That's true. But the gap, though, Sister Maya, between the intellectuals in the academy versus the musicians is still a gap there. But the bridge, mm -hmm. then, is the poets who are in the academy and moving with music. Moving back and forth. No, I hear you. Mm, I hear you. You're listening to Cornell West and Eddie Glaw Jr. on James Baldwin's Legacy. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For CDs of this program and Begin Again, the book on James Baldwin, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. We're offering free of charge MP3s, PDFs, and printed transcripts of this program. Our website, alternativeradio.org. I, I mean, Brother Eddie knows that, you know, part of my critique of Baldwin, because I'm always suspicious of any revival, you know, there's a lot of people <laughs> revival Baldwin, you know what I mean? And we appreciate Baldwin is unbelievable. But my critique is that Baldwin doesn't linger with his critique of the worst of the black bourgeoisie. His critique of white liberals is devastating. His critique of black liberals, underdeveloped. It's there, but he doesn't really sustain it. It's not an E. Franklin Fraser indictment of the black bourgeoisie in 1955. And you see, in the Obama, post-Obama era that we live in, we've got to have a bold critique of the worst of the black bourgeoisie that has in fact too often turns its back to the black poor and black working class. Mm -hmm. Now with the best of the black bourgeoisie, it's beautiful. But Baldwin tends to be reluctant, it seems to me. Is, is, is that fair or unfair? What do you think though, brother? I think I think this is this this is why we need to return to the evidence of things not seen. The Atlanta situation. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I I think this is precisely the moment mm -hmm. that you're look that you're looking for, okay, because Baldwin, Bald what happens when white supremacy still obtains and black folk have power? What are we to make of Atlanta? This representation of the very class that you're talking about, right? White supremacy. He makes that wonderful distinction between white people and people who happen to be white, which I love, right? Yeah. Trying to get us to pay attention to the ideology of whiteness. But the object of that critique is the way in which power functions and the way in which capitalism functions and what happens when we get access to it. 
and mm -hmm. white supremacy still obtains. Because what happens is the black intelligentsia gets so disarmed in the age of Obama. So that we didn't have enough critical voices telling the truth about the connections to Wall Street and drones and empire and so forth. Everybody wanted to protect him. Well, black unity is a beautiful thing. Black solidarity is different. See, black solidarity means the, you put a primacy on the least of these. I go biblical. The poor, the working classes, the, 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 the widows, the fatherless, not just the highly successful ones who are doing well. They're not the measure of how black people are doing. You are absolutely right. right. You see what I mean? So You're right. Mm -hmm. I want to ask before we pivot, because we're about to move to this part where the questions come. In addition oh, okay. to, to people like Kian Yamada Taylor, who are who did critique Obama, um, and who are critiquing. Strong. She's still as strong as can be. And she at Princeton too. What's going like, on at Princeton? Wildly, <laughs> I'm wildly oh. proud of her. But I want to ask one more question with with this this framework framework that Dr. West has provided to us before we transition to um, to the questions from the audience. So, can you speak to the possibility? genuinely multiracial democracy while capitalism persists? You know, of course. I mean, we have to have, we have to freedom dream, right? I think there's a, a possibility for uh, a multiracial coalition to speak to the contradictions of capitalism in this moment. But as long as capitalism obtains, there's going to be the view that some people are disposable. It seems to me. Works in tandem um, with white supremacy in that way. Oh, where racial capitalism is what it is, right? And so part of, but but that doesn't preclude, because I, if I understand the question, it doesn't preclude the possibility of multiracial coalition to actually strike the blow to, the, to what capitalism is on, because the contradictions are in full view. One of the interesting things about this current moment is that, that the last 40 to 50 years uh, of Reaganism, right, we are, is being revealed to be bankrupt. Right, that's right. All, Mm -hmm. All of his contradictions are in full view. Mm -hmm. And so part of what we're seeing in the streets are, you know, young folk who, who have come, who've come of age in the age of catastrophe or accumulated uh, grief and, and the like. You see uh, folk protesting over police brutality and the like. You see a kind of uh, solidarity and vulnerability that the pandemic has generated. Um, but the idea underneath it all, or at least the judgment underneath it all, is that the country is broken, right? And, and that's why we see all of these different groups and coalitions uh, uh, out in the streets risking their lives, we must say, because they are risking their lives. So my short answer to the question is, yes, I believe that in the possibility of multiracial coalitions uh, in the face of, of, of capital. Cornell, uh, does that make oh, sense? Oh, no, well, we got to have, we got to have solidarity and coalitions based on deep integrity and willingness to fight for poor people, beginning with people of color, not just black people. Original sin of America is not slavery. It's the treatment of indigenous people. America begins as an empire. It doesn't begin as a democratic experiment. A democratic experiment within the bowels of the empire itself predicated on black folks' labor and vicious hatred of black people. But yes, we got to have multiracial coalitions. There's just no doubt about that. It just have to make sure all those coalitions I have to be unapologetic about fighting white supremacy and male supremacy and transphobia and homophobia and so forth. Baldwin himself talked about the American style of socialism. You got Absolutely. Yankee, yeah, Yankee Doodle like Yankee Doodle, talking about Bobby Seale and the other. Exactly. You know, absolutely. He began as a Trotskyite when he was when he, he was young. 
very, very much so. And Empire. I mean, here, uh, you know, with uh, Juma Baraka and Glenn Ford and all of our, uh, our leftist folk, they, 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 they keep the pressure on. America is an empire and a predatory capitalist civilization and profoundly white supremacy at its core, profoundly male supremacists at its core. Uh, uh, with its transphobia and homophobia, but within that same experiment, there have been freedom fighters and love warriors coming out of a variety of different traditions. We, you know, culturally and artistically have actually been in the vanguard of it. Right. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Before we make this transition to, to audience questions, are there thoughts you want to share? Sister Maya, let me say this before we turn to the questions. Doc, talk about the love this man has loved me to death. And without his love and example, um, none of this would be possible. Um, he loved me into understanding that this country boy from Mississippi could, could say something in the world. Gave me the authority to believe in myself and to understand that I had the capacity to think with anybody, to walk in any room, to be a free black man. Yes. And to understand what it means to walk in love. So he poured all his love in me, and I just want to give him all the glory. Not all the glory, because it goes to God, but all, no, all no. the glory. It's just such a blessing to be part of a great tradition, knowing that you're holding up that blood-stained, tear-soaked banner in hmm. such a way that the self-examination goes hand-in-hand hand with the fortitude, with the determination to keep on fighting keep on swinging. How do we deal with neoliberalism's patterns of commodifying, appropriating, and effectively manipulating radical discourses, practices, and emotions? How can I put this? And this is going to sound a bit too abstract. How do we resist the way in which neoliberalism reduces us to being individuals in pursuit of our own self-interest in competition and rivalry with other individuals in pursuit of their own self-interest. And because we're individuals in pursuit of our own self-interest and competition and rivalry are the basic uh, values that define that, right? It eviscerates any notion of the public good, right? This is why you got folk can't understand why they cannot wear masks. They have no conception of what a robust understanding of standing in relation with others in genuine communities. Part of what we have to do, it seems to me, is to figure out how to build relationships with one another that in some ways hold off that model, that way of being in the world, right? Build communities of love that allow you to laugh full belly laughs, to be rageful. Those yeah. folk who will enable you to reach for a different way of being in the world. Right. And I'm not trying to sound like Alistair McIntyre docking, talking about creating these little pockets where you can go <laughs> off and, and run away from, from modernity. But I am saying that their way, how we forge relationships with one another becomes an active political gesture in this moment, it seems to me. Does that make sense, Doc, or is that too? Oh, absolutely. And the joy that you have in those relationships have to be deeper than the pleasure you get in other corners of the world. In other corners of the, uh, of the community. See, joy is something qualitatively different than pleasure. Black people traditionally have been a soulful people because we've been a joyful people. You can't be soulful if your whole life is just about pleasure. It has to cut at that deeper spiritual 
and moral level. And we have to be honest. We have to realize all of us, especially those of us in the black middle class, are always already commodified in one way or another. And that has to be the object of our critical reflection. It's like Baldwin and No Name in the Street. He says, I know I'm the great white hope for the liberal establishment. I want to talk about that. I don't, I'm not going to be that hope for them. Now, that uh -huh. doesn't mean white folk. It doesn't mean he just kowtowing the black folk. He got something inside of him that's called a calling, not just a career. He got something inside of him called a cause, not just a brand. And I need to say that now in a highly commodified culture. Everybody can't wait to have a brand. Can't wait to have their brand. They missing the point. That's a key sweat moment. Something, something just ain't right. <laughs> something, something just ain't right. That's what mama tells Walter in a raisin in the sun, right? We right. talk about freedom. Now all we talking about is money. And what did Jimmy say about sweet Lorraine? Jimmy said she understood the difference between keeping the faith and making it. Everybody got it. In some sense, make it because you got to have cash. You don't live by bread alone. You got to keep the faith. Whatever faith it is, you know, whatever faith it is, it's got to be a faith bigger than your ego, bigger than your narcissism, bigger than your career, bigger than your opportunism, right. bigger than your next PR move. You got to have something inside of you. And right. Brother Eddie Glad, he got something inside of him that he had before I even set eyes on. Um, in a moment where we are not safe with active close physical intimacy because of a pandemic. How do we build real closeness in a digital era? You know, when we're sort of trapped on platforms that are capitalist projects and that are fast forms of the kind of developed relationships or community-based ties that we would make in person otherwise. That's a hard question, Maya. Uh, I'm thinking about Wilna Jumist, Paul Taylor's wife. She lost her mama to COVID-19, and she couldn't go home to say goodbye to her. Couldn't send her home right, because she was worried about coronavirus and her children. So there's, there are ways in which this current pandemic has interrupted touch, has given grief a different sort of register. It gives it an edge, because grief now comes with regret. And grief and regret is is dangerous, right? Mama, I wish I could have said to you that I I was sorry before you before you mm -hmm. went away. I wish I could mm -hmm. have resolved X, Y, and Z. And so that's happening alongside of the fact that we are sheltering in place, and many of us are, and, and we don't, we can't touch, we can't engage. But I think they're in the midst of this. So I'm trying to get to an answer to your question, is that in the midst of this, we have to find ways of being together. We're trying to figure out how to maintain each other's soul, how to yes. be a, how to be not a crutch, but a shoulder in the yes. midst of this. And, and, and so how are we gonna be coming on the opposite end of this? You know, the way in which we're trying to continue community and stand in right relation with each other under these conditions. Mm -hmm. What it will look like when we get on the other side of this mm -hmm. might even be, it might just be even deeper, if that makes sense. I certainly oh. hope so. And I think that's a real possibility out of the project of making time for one another, which seems that's to be so the important. core of your answer. You remember that part two of Coltrane's Love Supreme's resolution? That's right. We've got to resolve ourselves, tied to the pursuance. 
we resolve ourselves, nothing will get in the way of our love of each other. People whose childhood have been born in Virginia and got sold to Houston, Texas. Yeah. Never forgot about that precious little black baby. And as soon as you get free, if you got to walk from Virginia to Texas, you going to get that precious little girl. That's oh, right. Resolve that nothing will get in the way of the love that we have for the people. You see? Mm -hmm. That's right. And and whatever it takes, you got to be improvisation, got to be flexible, prudent, protein and so forth. But whatever it takes. And I think that's part, again, of, of the great tradition that we started this dialogue. Absolutely. Very much so. Very much so. I think it transitions into this question of how we raise our black children. I haven't been a child for a long time, but I was raised by black people who love black people um, and uh, who care for our souls and our intellects. And there is a question here about how we raise our black children. So that's how I feel raising my black children. How do we negotiate our own radicalized trauma while trying to give enough sunscreen for our children to not get burnt in the white streets? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. You know, there's this wonderful line and there's this wonderful moment in the uses of the blues uh, where Jimmy rejects a certain description of the Negro problem, right? He says, I don't know what people mean by the Negro problem, right? But what we mean by the Negro problem is that we got to try to keep whatever this world is saying about our children from taking root into in them. Trying to keep whatever the world is saying about them from taking root in their spirits, in their souls. Yeah, right? Those yeah. thousand cuts daily, right? But we have to be honest with ourselves. I have to be honest with, with myself that my own trauma, my own wounds showed up in how I tried to raise my baby. You know, there's generational baggage. You bring it to the, to the moment. All, you know, you love the best way you can. That's right. As vulnerable and full of fault as it may be, you love the best way you can. And it seems to me that to fortify them in that love, that you no, know, as crazy as he may be, as as broken as he seems, that Negro loves me to death. Yeah. And if they can come out of there, because, you know, if they can come out of that with that sense of love, then they have the armor. Because that black love is something else. They have the armor to, to deal with the world. But we got to keep it from, we got to keep the world from taking, that the detritus of the world from taking root, from settling in their spirits. Yes. And that's an ongoing battle. Does that make sense? Oh, that's, 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 that's so powerful, though, brother. It's so true. You know, one of the great moments in the fire next time is in the uh, letter to the nephew. Yeah. When Baldwin says, don't be afraid. Martin Luther King Jr. used to say what? I'd rather be dead than afraid. So I tell my son, my dear brother Cliff, and my sisters, and my daughter Zaytun, two little precious ones, I say, you are so precious and priceless that the world might not understand that, but don't you ever be afraid to take a stand for something right. Don't be afraid. Don't you ever sell out. Don't you ever cave in. Don't you ever give up. Just really quickly, I know there's this line of going back to the letter to my nephew. And you, I just reached back and grabbed it. He said, to be loved, baby, hard and forever to strengthen you against the loveless world. Yeah. That's what Seth says to Paul D. Either you love, right? Your love is too hard. No, 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 no. 
Then he says, remember that. I know how black it looks today for you. It looked black that day too. Yes, we were trembling. We have not stopped trembling yet. But if we had not loved each other, none of us would have survived. And now you must survive because we love you and for the sake of your children and your children's children. That's that's what we're talking about. Ooh, right that's now. what we're talking about. Keep in mind, this is not love of blackness in the abstract. This is love of black people individually, the ones who will cuss you out, the ones who will tell you all they're worthy of being loved. You don't love them because you want them to love you back because they know popularity content. Every black person who falls in deep, profound love of black people has been partly crucified by black people. That's right. Everyone. <laughs> That's right. Now. Malcolm to Martin to Marcus to Fannie Lou to Ella Baker to Harriet Tubman, but they kept loving anyway because their love was that thick kind of love. It wasn't this manby pammy quid pro quo. I help you, you help me. You love me, I love you. Can you imagine what our music would have sounded like if that's what they were saying about? Lord have mm -hmm. mercy. One more big question. Sure. Sure. What do you think Baldwin would have to offer black liberation organizers who are facing a deeply militarized police department and a resurgence of proud white supremacist violence? That's a really, that's an interesting question. And I wouldn't dare try to, to suggest that I would be able to anticipate Baldwin's words in this moment. I would just, you know, direct you to the wreckage. Mm -hmm. To search, to search within his corpus, because I think he has language for us to speak to the moment. And you know, he he said he, they asked him this question in Esquire in 1968, and he said, "I know." They said, "Well, what would you say to the folk who are out in the street?" Uh, he he said, "Well, you know, I wouldn't tell them not to get their guns." I wouldn't okay. tell them, and I'll paraphrase, I wouldn't tell them not to fight and to defend themselves. And I would say to them, and I'm paraphrasing here, if you're going, if you're going to blow, if you're going to kill that white man, if you're going to blow his brains out, if you're going to shoot him, which it may come to, he said, don't hate him. Because the hatred will corrode the soul, you know? Mm -hmm. Because at the, heart, at the heart of Jimmy's project, it seems to me, is a moral concern about who, who do we take ourselves to be? Who do we aspire to be? How do we not allow the ugliness of the world to, to deform and disfigure the soul right, as we engage in this arduous task of self-creation under these captive conditions? So what would he say? Fight, fight to your last breath, because that's what he said. But do it in the name of love, not in the name of hate. Oh, that's eloquence. That's wisdom speaking, my brother. That's wisdom speaking. And we could say, even though we should never speak for Brother Baldwin, that when he went to the heart of American apartheid, U.S. neo-slavery, terrorism and trauma, called Jim Crow and Jane Crow, that's what he was up against. He got off that plane and that bus, and he walked into this militarized zone, lynchings and various vicious attacks and what have you, and what he first thing I think he, he accents is how is it that black folk are able to keep their souls intact? 
See, that's a moral and a spiritual question. They didn't have a lot of political power. They didn't have a lot of economic power. They had a richness. They had a depth. They had a tremendous uh, 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 breadth of something cultural and moral and spiritual that actually made them morally superior than the white supremacists. Not because they were born that way, because their tradition under tremendous blood, sweat, and tears had produced them in that way. And that blew his mind, because he, he used to Harlem. And you know, the, the black version of urbanicity in, in Harlem is different than the black version of rural, rural Mississippi. We all knew rural Africans, but we got different circumstances. The speed of walking and a whole lot of other things is going on there, you see. And so uh, it blew his mind to encounter such a great people spiritually and morally under those kind of militarized conditions. That's the standards we have to keep as we move into the 21st century. And it's a very difficult standard because we've experienced, you know, strong moral decline in, in Black That's America true. because of the commodification and commercialization that Maya was talking about and because the white supremacy so easily gets inside of us that we don't extricate it, as it were. But as long as we try to denigerize ourselves, in the name of love, where whiteness or white people are not the point of reference. If you so obsessed with hating yes. white folk, they still your point of reference. You in a world of trouble. You still captive. You still trapped. You see. Now, if you're loving white folk and not loving black folk, you sick. You pathological. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And pathology, you know, is 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 out there. In Real a talk. Number of different ways. You see. That's true. what it is to denigerize yourself by means of access to tradition. That's what our churches ought to be doing. That's what our, our mosques ought to be doing. That's what our synagogues ought to be doing. That's what our poets at their height do. That's what our musicians at their height do. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Come get this love so you never get niggerized in such a way that you forget that you're part of a great tradition. Yeah. And I hope that we'll see you at the next one. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you sister Love Maya. you, Doc. Thank you. And Thank brother, you, brother Eddie, man, brother Eddie. <laughs> Lord have mercy. What a love warrior you are at the deepest level, man. And we're going to be faithful unto death. We made a covenant. We're going to go down swinging. We're going to oh. go down. I'll, I'll go down before him, but I'll go down with a smile on my face because I know you just can continue on. <laughs> I love you to death, brother. Oh, my God. Love you to death, my brother. That was Cornell West and Eddie Glaw Jr. on James Baldwin's Legacy. The moderator was Maya Marshall. Eddie Glaw Jr. is university professor at Princeton and author of Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Today. Cornell West is professor of the practice of public philosophy at Harvard and the author of Race Matters, and Black Prophetic Fire. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and progressive and in our 35th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, Alternative Radio. Dot .org To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Eddie Glaw Jr. and Cornell West on James Baldwin's Legacy, and Eddie Glaw Jr.'s book on Baldwin, Begin Again, 
Just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. We are offering free of charge MP3s, PDFs, and printed transcripts of this program. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to Haymarket Books. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with John Coltrane, a love supreme. <laughs>